G'day everyone and welcome to the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. I'm your host Jason. And I'm your co-host Luke. How you going buddy? Yeah, good mate, good. A few technical difficulties tonight. We're starting a, about an hour later than we should be, but that's okay. Both Michael and I have been having some issues. Seems but, like a uh, common theme. Yeah. <laughs> Last week. <laughs> oh mate, yeah, I feel like I'm my own IT department because they don't even know what's going on with this webcam. But anyway, here's what it is. That's it. Yeah. So um, we're going to get pretty much stuck into into this episode, but before we do, I just wanted to give a quick um, quick plug for Ross McGibbon's Reptile Photography. He's got an awesome calendar out at the moment, and it's a really good uh, really good calendar to get because not only does he have some really killer photography on there that's really top notch, but you'll also be supporting the Royal Flying Doctor Service and also the Global Snake Bite Initiative as well by by buying the calendar. And you know, all us herpos out there, it's always good to have a calendar on the wall, especially when you're getting eggs on the ground and all sorts like that so yeah guys make sure you go and head over to um rmrphotography.com.au make sure you grab a copy of that calendar and support a really good cause yeah anyway that's my piece done, <laughs> done. <laughs> mine's on the way so i'm looking forward to yeah it. yeah i picked up a um sent him a message today actually i'm picking up the canvas with the kimberly rock monitor shot on it i'm stoked nice so. that's my favorite one so I was going to go with the Gillen's monitor, but uh, yeah, I just thought, you know what? Like, I just I cut, that photo is just killer, especially yep. with the the river and everything in the background and that red rock. Yeah, oh, right definitely. up my alley. But yeah. Anyway, I'm going to introduce the get, introduce the guest and just get stuck straight in because we've got a whole bunch of questions that we want to ask. So uh, tonight, guys, we have Michael McFadden from the Reptile Division of Taronga Zoo on. Michael, how are you going, mate? Yeah, really good, guys. How are you going? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Sitting back and enjoying the beer, so can't complain. <laughs> Great news. Yeah. Great news. So, um, yeah, oh, thank you so much for coming on. I know yeah, you're, thanks, you're a pretty busy guy, so you know, feel really pleasured to, to have your presence here with us, mate. I appreciate it. Thanks, Eves. Yeah, so, um, mate, we're just going to start out with kind of some of sort of like basic questions essentially to kind of give the listeners a bit of a feel about yourself and then we'll kind of work into some of the juicy stuff that you're currently working with. But um, just the first kind of question straight off the bat, like what kind of got you really interested in in reptiles or in wildlife in general? Yeah, um, I suspect my reply is probably not going to be too <laughs> too different to, 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 to many. Uh, I, it started out like most of us, I guess, as a, as a young kid, always catching little garden skinks in the back garden and kind of begging my dad every every weekend to take me down the river catching water dragons and water skinks and <laughs> bearded dragons and so forth. Uh, so, so right from when I was there, I was one of those kids who you, you'd pick up a reptile book in the library and you'd see my name over and over and over and over on the borrowing card and uh, <laughs> we're going for everything I could get my hands on. So uh, spending every moment I can down the bush. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So like most of us, dinosaurs, reptiles from an early age and then um, – I guess it just gets worse and worse and worse as you get older. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it sure does. It doesn't stop, hey. It just keeps no. rolling. Exactly right. No, it, it, it doesn't. You, as you get older, you just get to go further and further afield to look for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we got we uh, can start going a little bit further afield now and adventuring out a little bit now that the lockdown's over. Pretty excited about that. Yes. But yeah. True. Yeah, some LGAs you don't get to see many reptiles here. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Very, very true. So, um, Michael, do you do you currently keep any reptiles at home? Um, to, to a degree, yes. 
Uh, I've got a lot of reptiles at home, but I don't actually own them myself these days. Um, I, I used to keep many, many reptiles, but then I guess working here where I am now at the at Taronga, um, I, I kind of scarred right back because I was involved in a lot of field work for some of the conservation programs and always moving around a bit um, with work. But but um, more recently, I've increased my collection under my license anyway. But in terms of ownership of the reptiles, they're not so so much mine these days. My young fella's right into it. So, so oh, cool. um, pr- pretty That's much awesome. All, all, all the animals these days, I regard as his. Um, the only ones I've carried over are for the last um, – over a decade now, I've had a, a trio of pygmy pythons, a pair of womas and an aki, and they were kind of the pets I maintained and kept. And then as of a couple of years ago, the, the collection's kind of increased uh, size again because of, because of my young fella getting into it. Oh, that's awesome. So w- what's his kind of like uh, bread and butter, if you will? Yeah, he, he's into geckos, um, monitors, pythons. He, he, he's right into it these days. I really enjoy actually having a, a selection of reptiles at home that I – don't actually look after. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's on my days off, if I want to go down and feed the the, the king's monitors or the gill and I or or whatever it is, I can go down and, and do it because I enjoy it. But I don't have to clean and, and feed and, and so forth. And and he's right into it. He, he, he's his name's Jack. He's only just turned fourteen not long ago. Uh, he's got an Instagram page, uh, Mortal Immortal Reptiles. But, but but he's he's right into it. He got a pair of um. Northern Northern Velvet Geckos uh, about two years ago now, and then just really got into it. He's expanded his book collection. He's, he just reads and watches and and so forth. And these days, he's keeping and breeding a few species of Noctile geckos. Uh, he's Northern Velvet geckos, the Kingorum, um, Pygmy pythons, Wymers, um, all of it. I'll get a message while I'm at work during the day and said uh, saying, "Dad, the, the banded uh, knobtails and the the velvets have laid another clutch of eggs. I've set them up and." Does it all himself? I don't really have to to, to do much myself, so I, I quite I quite enjoy it. That's, That's awesome. unreal. How, how old is your son? Uh, he turned fourteen last month. Killing it then. He, he's, he's right into it. Yeah, he's building his own enclosures and, and even kind of he's been sculpting out the foam recently to, to to get into kind of doing the mock rocking and everything. So I kind of give him a short demo and and then he takes it right on himself. He, he looks he looks older than fourteen. Admittedly, he's kind of almost my height and. Um, yeah, <laughs> gross spurts, but, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's killing it, he's doing really well. He started up a pretty good Instagram page, too. Turns out I am already following him on there, but um, yeah, he's got some I nice photos and I stuff on there, too. Yeah, no, he's, he's writing, so he's starting to get into photography a little bit, too. Um, we, we go away on our, our family holidays, are usually kind of driving trips around the country, like whether it be a driving trip around WA or the NC or kind of Queensland or somewhere like that. So they, they do get to see a lot of a lot of wild herps. Uh, and stuff. So he's starting to get into his photography too. Yeah, that's it's another that's rabbit hole for him to get into. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's an expensive one come Christmas time. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Oh, he's got a nice little photo over there of the, the back of a gill and I by the looks of it. And uh, yeah, I love that scalation on that animal. That yes. looks unreal. Looking for this. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, yeah, and it wasn't too long ago that you were actually heckling me for a few gill and I for him as well, wasn't it? It was. Um... It, it was. Yeah, yeah, well, it was. And then uh, he contacted someone online and there was no one available, but then you know, he got a text message saying that a couple had come up. So we drove down the coast and picked up a couple for him. They, they, they're cracking along and doing really well. Really well. Oh, that's awesome. Thing. Did you did you just pick up like a young pair or, or was it just kind of like a couple of unsexed animals? A couple of young unsexed hatchlings, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, so oh, that's, that's awesome. Even better that he can raise them himself, though, I reckon. That's always nice doing that. 
Yeah. Nice. yeah. So um, what actually led you to pursue a, a lifelong career in the zoo industry and where did you start? I mean, I kind of actually fell into to, to being in the zoo. It's a little bit different to most people's avenue. A lot of people that work in zoos kind of start off as volunteers and um, get experience that way and come through, whereas I kind of actually fell into it. I, I finished up my um, degree um, doing zoology, and my honours degree was actually on regent honey eaters. I, I kind of uh, let my guard slip for a year and studied birds because <laughs> um, <laughs> at, at our uni we had a, our um, – um, the only terrestrial kind of vertebrate zoologist was a was an ornithologist, and she had a study lined up at the zoo uh, on region honey eaters. And I was interested in both herps and conservation, so um, that was a conservation project. The species is critically endangered. So I thought, okay, that sounds pretty good. And it was based here at the zoo. And coming across here, I ended up bumping into Peter Harlow a couple of times, who was the manager of the herp department at the time, and having a few good chats. And and then when I finished up my honours, um, he let me know at one stage that there was. Um, positions going not so much in reptiles but kind of casual positions in the zoo for because they had night zoo kicking up and so i applied for that and got on the casual list and pretty much he had shifts for me soon after so so i kind of fell into that my intention was to actually go on and study a phd and up in northern australia somewhere up in northern territory or the kimberley uh, was my intention but but um i kind of fell into it and kind of i've been here ever since it's what 18 and a half nearly 19 years now um which has been really good. It kind of it was really good. Peter Harlow. I don't know if you've met Pete, but he's done a lot yeah. of work on Fijian iguanas and uh, all those kind of things. And just coming in under under Pete because he's really conservation research focused, yeah. uh, and that was kind of the direction I was really interested in. So, and he gave me a lot of freedom and a lot of f- flexibility to pursue different conservation projects as well. So, um, worked out really well. I stayed, and um, I'm been here ever since. That's up now. Yeah. I've got a way to fall into a job, so to speak. That's awesome. Yeah, Peter Harlow's a pretty nice guy, actually. He, um, I think I, I bought a melanistic blue tongue off him a few years back and I, I run kind of like a little very, very tiny local Facebook group here on the northern beaches and he ended up coming to one of the meets out there as well because he just happened to bump into him. At, or I happened to bump into him at work and, you know, started up a yarn. So, yeah, he's wealth of knowledge, that guy. Yeah, he definitely is. He definitely is. He's enjoying his retirement now, travelling about the place. For, for, oh, that's good. So it's, Oh, sorry, he's no longer at the zoo then. No, no, he he left a couple of years, a few years back now, and now he's been um, yeah tra- traveling about the country. Oh, not a bad way to be in retirement, that's for sure. No, de- de- definitely no. He's, he's enjoying it. And before he left, he kind of moved across to the research department for a few years. Um, yep. And, and and then and then yeah, retired and yeah, I was getting posts from him during lockdown from up in the. The territory and up in Queensland, he made it out before the lockdown. <laughs> How lucky is that? Well. That's one thing me and Luke are planning on doing is trying to get up to Queensland once this lockdown's over, but we'll have to see how that goes. I don't think she'll let us in, mate. Yeah, probably. So, when did you end up taking the reins as kind of like the head keeper there at the, the reptile area at Taronga? Yeah, sure. Um, well, back in 2005, they created supervisor departments for each department um, and I got the position as the HERP department supervisor. So Peter Harlow was the manager here and I was the supervisor. Um, and then um, that was, yeah, that was kind of 15, 16 years ago now. And then come maybe, 
oh, six, five, six years ago now. They merged our department in with the, the mammal and the bird departments reporting to a precinct manager. Um, so, so that's when Pete moved to research. So then it was just myself, um, I guess, leading the herp department. Uh, but I, I report in under an, another former herper as well, Trent Russell, who used to be at the, the Reptile Park and then the Alice Springs Desert Park. Like he was up there on Weigel's first collection trips with the Ruskar pythons and so forth. Oh, awesome. That would have been unreal to be on. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine it would have been. I still haven't been yeah. there yet. <laughs> Neither. <laughs> I really want to go up there. Really, really want to go up there. That's half the reason I got Ross's photo. It was kind of like a bit of a like, one day I'm going to go find one of those Kimbos up there. So Yeah, well, nice beast. Yeah. Nice beast to see in the wild too. Yeah, I reckon. Well, I mean, all the wild ones that I've seen in photos tend to be a lot nicer than the ones in captivity as well. I've noticed that. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know why that is. Um, I don't know if it's is it the eastern. I've only ever seen them around Kananara. I've, I've never seen them kind of out in the kind of Mitchell Falls or anywhere. But the, the one I saw was quite a, a nice one. But I've seen the ones that have come up for sale, and they they do seem to be pretty plain in color compared to the well, the ones yeah. in Australia anyway. Yeah. I wonder if it comes down to something like just where the locality is, where they're collected from, like that original populations or something like that, and maybe that's got a lot to do with it, and it's probably just polygenic variants as it kind of works down the bloodline, I'd imagine. I'm sure, like, if people work with them enough, they could probably maybe, you know, um, selectively breed for a little bit of a better colour, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, you only have to have a look at what the Yanks have, and the Yanks have those real cracking gimbos. You know, they, they exactly. do have a lot of those bright reds and oranges and that through them, whereas we yep. we tend to have that kind of more olive green and, and maroon sort of thing. So, anyway, regardless, they're still a yeah. killer-looking animal, and I, I wouldn't swap my kimbo out for the world. So, <laughs> yeah, beautiful little animals. Um, Mike, can you give us a bit of a rundown on what the zoo's reptile collection kind of looks like at the moment, even if it is just a bit of a rough rundown? Yeah, sure. I guess it's a it's, it's a good mix of exotic and natives. So um, we've got, I guess, a, a fairly decent collection of arid animals uh, in, in our arid section. We've got a, a I guess, a, a range of sm- small natives, and and I guess we've got a lot of the standout big exotics um, like the Komodo dragon, the reticulated python, um, and quite a few other kind of um, charismatic ones like rhino iguanas, uh, cobras, rattlesnakes, eyelash vipers. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess a, a pretty good mix. Um, my favourite would have to be the Komodo dragon, without doubt, I'd say. Such personality in those beasts. But, but, but um, yeah, I'd say a good mix of kind of natives and exotics. Yeah. Well, that, I, I thing. It seems to be a common thing with the Komodo dragons, with the people that work with them, that they're, they're the favourite to work with, so... Yeah, how can you go past monitors? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when you, there's something about monitors. them. Yeah, definitely. They're, they're intelligent beasts. Yeah. I have to ask, though, what are the eyelash vipers like to work with? Yeah, beautiful little things. Like, they don't do a lot. Uh, <laughs> they, they they sit in their pose for, for, for days at a time often. But, but um, yeah, uh, brilliant little beasts. Um, low maintenance, don't, don't kind of take a lot of energy uh, to, to get them through. Uh, they require a bit of a spray for to have a, have a drink. But, but, but um, yeah, no, they're be- beautiful little beasts. We, we've got some more coming soon. Um have a good mixture of yellow and yellow and green kind of Christmas tree phase, which would be really good. That's one oh, yeah. exotic venomous snake that I really, really can appreciate. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously it's here. color attracting, but at the same time, just the kind of habitats you can build for something like that to, to kind of replicate a little patch of rainforest or that. Uh, yeah. Stunning little animals. 
A hundred percent. Our enclosure is not huge, the one here at the zoo, but we're, we're planning for a new reptile house at the moment uh, to open in under two years, um, which oh, we should cool. start soon. And for eyelash vipers, I think we got three square meters for the enclosure for, wow. so, for that one. So hoping we can have a few in there and really, really deck it out nicely. Because they don't get that big either, do they? They're pretty small. Yeah, no, they're, they're one of the small, one of the small kind of arboreal vipers. Um, yeah, they don't grow too lot, too large at all. Tiny as hatchlings, or well, not as hatchlings as babies, I guess. They're live bearers. Yeah, I could imagine yeah. they'd be a handful to get feeding as well. Yeah, we, we've only bred them once since I've been here, and that was um, oh, maybe ten years ago now. Yeah, but, but yeah, no, they, they they are a tricky one, and when it's um, when it's a baby pygmy python, and you're getting it going, at least you can kind of hold it gently <laughs> further the way down <laughs> the body, whereas yeah, they're a little bit more, a little bit more dicey, but. No, they, they, once they get going, they're, they're pretty good and they're pretty bulletproof. Oh, that's awesome. So when did you when you did kind of take over as the head reptile keeper there, did, did you end up kind of like trying to change how anything was managed there at all when you did take over? Not to a great deal. I guess it was kind of a, a, a gentle merging because for, for many years, Pete was the manager and I was the supervisor and we kind of shared, I guess, shared duties to some degree. Um Pete overseeing, for example, our Christmas Islands um, project, some of the staff management and so forth, and me overseeing kind of daily operations, uh, the rep, uh, amphibian conservation program. So we pretty much just, I, I guess, shared a lot of those duties. And then uh, once Pete left, I kind of took over his component of it. Um, but but no, very, very little change. I'm a pretty easygoing guy too. And we've got a really good team here at Taronga. So it's, it's um, yeah, it's a pretty smooth, pretty smooth machine. Oh, that's good. You so you would have worked with uh, young Josh Hatton as well at some stage. I did, I did, yeah, 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 yep. I was Josh's Josh's boss. <laughs> he's a good, he's a good fella, Josh. He's a very good fella. I remember meeting him at a McDonald's car park to buy a jungle python once. That's uh, okay. Going go. back a few years now, but yeah, there you go. yeah he's packed a lot into he's packed a lot into his time. He sure has. He, has. Yeah. he sure has. He's been a busy guy. I remember, yeah, watching very keenly as he was over in uh, over in Mar- Mauritius and Madagascar and stuff like that, and seeing all the tortoise photos and everything that he was putting up was pretty exciting. One hundred percent. He was only nineteen at the time there too, and I think on their job application they said you had to be twenty one plus, but he figured he'd apply anyway, and I think he wowed him and yeah, got got the gig and was over there in Mauritius and Madagascar, and you know he's done quite a bit. Yeah, it's unreal. Um, so, can you kind of just give us like a, a bit of a rundown of what a normal day at the zoo actually looks like for you and any sort of like protocols or anything you have to follow as you kind of move around between any animals? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess for us in the herb department, we're split into a few different sections. So, we have some staff who just look over the conservation programs and some staff who look after our collection animals on display uh, with the reptile house being split into a couple of rounds. So um, it very much depends on which round you're on. For me personally, I tend to do the amphibian conservation rounds of a morning um, and it really depends on which staff are in on the day. Um, I'll do that sometimes and then be stuck at the computer for the rest of the day or I'll do that and then move on and sometimes do the Christmas Island lizards or come up and do some of the venomous work uh, depending on which staff are in on the day. Uh, but for us, the, the typical round is any conservation project, projects get done first because uh, of quarantine, we have to do those first thing in the morning uh, before you've entered any other animal enclosure. Um, but yeah, today I was I, I did the frogs and what was I after? I did the saltwater croc and the Aldebaran tortoises, and other than that, I was tied down in meetings. <laughs> but, but, uh, 
quite variable, which is really good, and it ch- changes all the time, depending on which which staff are in, like how many staff we have on a given day. But uh, it's good fun. Most of our guys do their exhibits first of the morning before the public get in, uh, and then move to the off exhibit holding um, after that during the afternoon. Oh, that's unreal. Yeah, it's kind of simple. Well, in in a way, similar to what we do at, at the shop. You know, we kind of spruce everything up first thing of the morning and make sure it's all nice and clean and sparkly and stuff before the customers come through. Yeah. Um, most definitely. And we've broken it up into a few departments, even within the reptile houses for quarantine purposes, um, keeping everyone like on separate rounds throughout the course of the day. But, yeah, we'll have to, we have to deck out the enclosures a little bit more tomorrow. We're opening back up again kind of as of Friday this week. So so um, we'll have to get those exhibits making sure they're looking up to scratch again. That's exciting, isn't it, that, you know, everything's kind of opening back up because obviously, you know, the kind of industry that you're in was – well, not not suffering, but you know, at the same time, you know, you don't just, just don't get that sort of foot traffic through the door to really, really be able to pump out that education and stuff as well. Uh, definitely, most definitely, yeah, yeah. And, and without any guests, there's kind of no income too. So it's, so it's a really a good bonus, I guess, for for all zoos and parks. I guess for any yeah. shop in the industry to, to get people back on the ground again, which would be which would be really good. Yeah. Um. So. So you do actually do some educational work there from time to time with a few students. Can you tell us any anything about that and what's involved there? Yeah, sure. We, we do quite quite a, I guess quite a bit of educational work with kind of school groups of all ages. Um, um, we have school groups con- continually coming um, through the zoo here. Uh, the zoo also operates a Taronga Training Institute, which is kind of um, the captive cert free and captive animal management that uh, we occasionally give um, guest talks at and so forth and. Um, we do a lot of community education programs too, where we kind of yeah, we've head out into the field for different conservation projects to do kind of educational campaigns amongst the community uh, to really kind of engage them in the species that we're kind of targeting. Um, so quite a bit. We have work experience students, um, um, yeah, and university students. Now the, the zoo's got a partnership with uh, University of Sydney and have a kind of a, a I can't remember what the course is called, but it's. Uh, kind of a, a degree in uh, biology with a focus on conservation science um, based kind of half at the uni and half here at Taronga. Wow. So you're pretty, pretty full on with the amount of education that is going on there. It's a little bit more involved than what I actually thought, to be honest. But uh, Yeah, I remember back in, I think it was early 2018, I had a, a couple of couple of young students there actually asked for me to come and do a bit of a speech on captive husbandry of you know just like a hobbyist breeder side of aspects of things and um i ended up having to kind of follow up after you talking about some corroboree frogs to the yat one of the yats groups there and <laughs> that was completely nerve-wracking for me because i i mean i was pretty lucky i got to sit down and listen to you talk about corroboree frogs but then i was like oh man how am i going to follow michael <laughs> this is kind of <laughs> a t- tough gig to kind of follow that and yeah it's a bit of a tough crowd to be honest i walked out of there going oh, i don't know if i'll do that again <laughs> <laughs> oh, i was lucky I had, a, I had a bright bright yellow and black frog to kind of do the do the talking for me <laughs> yeah, yeah that always helps yeah. So speaking about the corroboree frogs, that's like one of your main endeavours of conservation at the moment. So can you kind of just give us a little bit of a background as to what's actually happening with the frogs and why they're in decline in the wild? Yeah, sure. Um, so for the corroboree frog, um, I think most people listening probably would, would have um, seen photos of them before, but they're a small uh, bright yellow and black frog uh, in the Mybratracid family, and they're only a small sport frog. They live up in Kosciuszko National Park. Um, and uh, iconic species only found in that area, but unfortunately they crashed really hard in the, in the mid-80s and 
and went from being super abundant throughout those kind of sphagnum ecosystems up there down to uh, very few left, uh, down to a few hundred left uh, at that time. Uh, and the reason for their decline is chytrid fungus, um, which is a disease impacting frogs all around the world. Um, in, in Australia, it got here kind of in the in the late 70s um, around uh, southern Queensland, northern New South Wales, and then spread north and southward. Um, it, it's wiped out six, maybe seven species, depending on taxonomy, um, uh, like what you class as a species, but but it wiped out the gastric brooding frogs, which are the two of your most iconic species worldwide with that unique reprodu- uh, reproductive ability to kind of swallow their eggs and let, let them go through to metamorphosis in the stomach of the female. And they, they disappeared back in 81 and 85 and throughout the late 80s, species up in North Queensland were disappearing. So uh, unfortunately, Kitra had a big impact over here, not as big as it had in Central America where they've lost kind of upwards of 80 species, but but um, had a big impact here. And now there's, there's a handful of other species now that are right on the brink. You've got the, the Southern Crabby Frog, the Northern Crabby Frog, uh, the Crimbert Tops, Tinker Frog, the Bulbul Frog, Spotted Tree Frog. They're, they're all species that are kind of right on the brink due to, due to Kitrid at the moment. So those species in particular require, I guess, ex situ conservation. So setting up uh, assurance colonies at, at zoos or parks to, to really uh, genetically manage populations to get them going. And uh, the Southern Crabbie Frog and the Northern Crabbie Frog are, are two of those. And we have both of those species here at Taronga. Um, we've got two facilities dedicated to the Southern Crabbie Frog. Uh, and one, um, they're both, they're 20 foot shipping containers converted to uh, frog conservation facilities. And then we got one large 40 footer uh, dedicated to the northern crabby frog. Um, we've been involved in both species for quite a number of years now. For southern crabby frogs, we, we maintain a population population of around maybe 400 frogs um, and breed them every year, produce kind of uh, upwards of a 1,000 fertile eggs that can be utilised for, for reintroduction purposes or, or research. Um, and similar with the northern crabby frog, we don't have quite as many of those, but but um, we've got a there's three different ESUs or evolutionary significant units, kind of genetic management groups for the northern crabby frog. And we're maintaining two here at Taronga. Uh, we were involved in one, but then the bushfires of 2019-20 unfortunately impacted a, a significant proportion of the remaining populations of the northern crabby frog. So we started establishing an insurance colony from those ones as well, just in case um, they crashed as a result of the fires. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we've been breeding them for a number of years now and, and, and doing a range of trial reintroductions uh, to kind of disease-free enclosures down in Kosciuszko National Park uh, to sites where we think chytrid may be less prevalent um, to producing offspring for like this year we're rearing up a bunch of offspring to go down to the University of Melbourne. Um, we've recently secured a grant, um, University of Melbourne, uh, led by Lee Skerritt and Lee Berger, to, to look at immunity to um, chytrid fungus, so genetic immunity, so mapping the genome of the frog and looking for genes or complexes of genes that afford them some level of resistance and then seeing if we can kind of identify those genes within the population to selectively breed for resistance. Um, but, yeah, there's been quite a quite a fair bit with the crappy frogs over time and, yeah, fortunately it's, 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 been, going, it's been going okay. Um, captive breeding has been established quite well. Um, a lot of research has come out of it so far and, and trial reintroductions like the, the southern crappy frog would more than likely be classes kind of extinct in the wild now without the reintroductions, but they're, they're at a number of our reintroduction sites. Um, and the northern crabby frog's still hanging in there, out there, but they're, they're still not in a great way. So when you do kind of set up one of those reintroduction sites, like I think I've, from memory, I think I've seen a couple of photos of how it's kind of done, but how do you actually go about doing that and making sure that those those sites are secure? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so, so we've tried reintroductions in a, in a few different um, few different techniques down there. Um, at some sites, we've oh, through National Parks and Wildlife Service and, and DPIA, set up artificial pools at a number of sites. So that way, we can release eggs and they can get through at least their tadpole stage to metamorphosis in an environment free of chytrid and also free of the impacts of drought because we've had kind of a lot of drought over the last 20 years now. Uh, so that way they can get through that stage and, and then survive. And some of the frogs are still at those sites. They keep turning back up and, and breeding at those sites that each year, um, uh, I guess, uh, at least a dozen nests or so have eggs in them uh, from those sites. Um, we've also got the big exclosures, so big kind of large enclosures that, that are maybe 30 by 40 metres um, that are designed to keep frogs out. And they've been set up uh, internally with artificial pools and habitat um, for the crabby frogs, and, and they're doing well in those big fenced enclosures. Um, um, they're, they're breeding there each year, and we're able to harvest eggs out of there uh, each year. Uh, so it's a great project. It's kind of it's led by Dr. David Hunter. Through, uh, he's a threatened species officer with DPIE. Uh, it does an absolutely amazing job for kind of threatened amphibians uh, in southeastern Australia. And, and um, yeah, we we've tried establishing. Uh, eggs, juvenile frogs, and adults into some of those enclosures just to compare the, the survival based on the life stage of the frog post-release. Um, everything we do, we usually try on a, an experimental fashion so that way kind of we can learn from it the following year and adapt our processes. Um, similar with like northern crabby frogs where we've been releasing those in the, the northern brindies, we've been uh, releasing eggs, uh, metamorph frogs, and older frogs and doing trial releases in autumn and spring just to see what, what, what affords us the kind of highest level of survival and adapt our techniques from there to, to boost success. Man, it's unreal. Are, are yeah. you able to kind of give us like a little bit of a, like a breakdown of how you actually go about breeding these frogs and what the kind of biology behind these frogs are? Because obviously there's so many different mm -hmm. ways that frogs actually breed. So just if you could give us a little bit of insight into how these guys do it, that'd be quite nice. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah they're, they're a bit different from a lot of other frogs. So, so you're right, with every frog species, the trigger very much varies from either a rainfall event to a, a low-pressure system to photo period to a whole range of things. And for these guys, I think photo period is a big thing. Uh, they breed in the wild the same same few weeks of the year every year, regardless of kind of the amount of rainfall or the temperature, uh, which suggests that photo period could be a, a big factor in that. Uh, in a dry year, you just get less breeding, um, but it's still the same kind of couple of weeks of the year. Um so in the facilities here at the zoo, we have a photosensitive switch on the side of the container. So as, as it gets light of a morning, it turns the lights on in the facility over the enclosures. And as it gets dark of an evening, it turns the lights off. So we don't have to adjust the timer to extend day length. It's just done every every day. It, it gets a kind of two minutes longer day length each day, kind of this time of year leading into the summer. Yeah. Um, and they're only found up in Kosciuszko National Park too. So they're only found above 1,300 metres elevation. So uh, up until recently, they, they're under a layer of snow throughout the winter period up in Cozzy. So we, we try to mimic the, the natural conditions. Uh, we give them a nice cooling down every winter. Uh, we don't cool them for as long as they probably experience in the wild. We give them probably only about six weeks, seven weeks down at five degrees Celsius, uh, during which time they kind of bury down under their moss and shut down for the winter. And um, this time of the year now, they've come up again. I've only just given them their first feed this last week. Um, so how are you cooling them down? in those shipping containers have you just got like a refrigeration setup or an air conditioner or we do yeah refrigeration a refrigeration setup so we got the yep. evaporator on the on the ceiling and the condensing unit at the back and yeah uh, we got climate control software on the side of the facilities so so we've got kind of a set separate um well during the winter it's a flat kind of five degrees celsius because i figure they're under a layer of snow on the wild and insulated but but um we give them it like a 
four temperature cycles throughout the day to give them kind of a day, afternoon, night, morning kind of temperature cycle. Um, yeah, in terms of temperature cycling, that, that's what we do. And in that climate control software, we've got thermostats controlled into that. And we've also got backup alarms as well. So if for some reason the temperature is getting above a certain set point, so maybe four to five degrees above what I've said of that, uh, or four or five degrees below the minimum I've said of that, uh, we'll get notified that something's going wrong. Um, and, and in addition to that, there's a, there's a backup thermostat in that that if it does get to any of those levels, it cuts off all the power to the lights inside the facility too, so that way it won't continue the heat. Yep. So a c- couple of little fail-safes in place just to make sure when you there's a handful of species we will work with here that are either extinct in the wild or down to the last 100 or so, so we just need to make sure that nothing, nothing, go, <laughs> nothing goes wrong in those kind of facilities. Um and, and then come breeding season for the for the crappie frogs, we throw the males in the breeding tanks. So we have big breeding tanks set up with, with live live plants and uh, moss. Um, we put the males in there first. We allow them to set up their little nest chambers and start calling away like crazy. And once they're hitting their peak of their calling period, uh, we put the females in. Uh, and then it's usually pretty quiet for a week. They don't lay straight away, but then about, a, about maybe six days, seven days after they've gone in, uh, I guess they've been assessing the males in their nest sites and, and then we start getting all the eggs flowing in after that point. What do the actual males' nest sites look like? like? Do they just use moss and kind of like clear a little patch of space or, or what do they do there? Yeah, they do. So, so we have them on, um, on on live moss growing on aquarium gravel and they set up all their nests in between the moss and the gravel. So they don't actually nest kind of amongst the moss. They, they get in that layer between the two. Um, and, and set up. And sometimes they can only be a few centimetres away from each other. Sometimes they kind of set up shop away from any other male. Uh, we, we breed them using a, a maximum avoidance of inbreeding genetic management system. So the males and the females are kind of unrelated to each other and we rotate them around the generations. So given, I don't know, in 30 years, we shouldn't have any level of inbreeding. And that's that's about the, when our first level of inbreeding may start to kick in. Wow. They'll use it kind of amazing. Yeah, they've, they've got quite a long lifespan. These guys live for not up to nine years in the wild and a lot longer in captivity. We've got, I don't know, about half of the original northern Brindavella, northern crabby frogs that we've got here are still alive. Uh, and they were collected in, as eggs in 2003, 2004. So, so that's kind of 17, 18 it's years almost, old. Yeah. And and it's such a tiny animal too. Yeah. They are, yeah, yeah. And they're still alive and they're still breeding. I think they're reproductive kind of um, the amount of reproduction has dropped off a little bit in recent years uh, getting to that age, but they're still, they're still breeding each year. Those, those kind of 17 year old animals, 18 year old animals. Wow. Kind of sounds like their nesting behaviors are quite similar to a lot of those little tiny ground frogs. Like, I mean, around Sydney, obviously you can get the, the red crown toadlet, which kind of buries down in amongst a whole bunch of leaf litter and gets down towards that moisture layer to sort of kind of have like a little nest area where the, the males guard those eggs. So it's kind of similar in a sense to the corroboree frog like that. A hundred percent. Yeah. The, the, the little nest sites kind of look, look pretty similar too. I guess, and those guys are pretty closely related uh, in the same genus and kind of in the same part of the genus too. Um, but with, with the, the, I guess the difference with the toadlet, so the, the, Crawberry frogs kind of tied into kind of a few set weeks of the year every year, uh, whereas the toadlet's one of those little suckers that breeds kind of all year round after after a heavy rainfall event. Yeah. Uh, those little guys, they're awesome, awesome little beasts. Um, we've got a population just across the road here from the zoo as well um, of, of those little dudes, and often we'll go for a wander across there after heavy rain, see how many are out calling. They are an awesome little animal, but geez, they can be a pain to find if you want to kind of dig one up for a photo or something. It's, I, can, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, the population across here, you'd, you'd never find them there under the 
I, I go across and listen to these guys, but but uh, underneath a dense layer of, of fern and, uh, and and leaf litter and veg. Yeah, I, I like it when you you know you get a little bit lucky and you might see a female kind of like walking around or something like in between the boys or something like that. You know, it's kind of like oh cool, I saw one, didn't have to disturb them. You know, it's yeah, it's good to get a bit of a fleeting glimpse of them. Oh, 100%. percent. They're awesome beasts. Yeah. So, so now that you've kind of just given us a little bit of a rundown of the corroboree frogs, you did kind of mention to us that you did work with some other frogs with conservation as well. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that, if you could? Yeah, sure. Uh, there's two other species we work with presently. Um, we've worked previously with green and golden bell frogs and with alpine tree frogs, but uh, these days our other two species are the yellow spotted bell frog, um, which is a species that was thought to have gone extinct back in 1980. So. Prior, prior, to, prior to me being born, um, and then the, and then it um, appeared again in two thousand nine on a small a small population of about a hundred individuals uh, on the southern tablelands, uh, just on kind of one one farming property, um, and that little population seemed to have seemed to have managed to hang in there uh, despite the the whole rest of the, the species disappearing over a couple of years when Kittred hit. Um, that population hung in there, so we we get a phone call back. Oh, I get a phone call back the day after. They were found and said, hey, is there potential that you could set up an insurance population? It's like, well, we kind of don't even need to answer that one. It's definitely, <laughs> we'll, we'll make something work. We'll make sure we get funding. We'll, we'll set up a facility kind of thing. Um, we collected tadpoles over a, over a handful of years and or over a couple of years, and it was quite handy that we did because um, in 2000 and late 2010, I guess, so pretty soon after, we had the La Nina weather pattern. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, there was only about 100 frogs at the site. And with the La Nina, you had um, kind of cold, wet summers, which is perfect for chytrid. Chytrid operates really well at cooler, wet temperatures. Above 25 degrees, it stops multiplying. Above 30 degrees, it dies. Um, so cooler, wet summers are perfect for, for chytrid. And unfortunately, there was high adult mortality due to chytrid in those years. And in addition to that, kind of in late December, which is when the, the frogs have all bred for the season, um, but the, the tadpoles haven't metamorphosed yet. There was a big flood event that kind of turned that chain of ponds type creek into a two-metre torrent that just gouged out all the aquatic vegetation. And we didn't see any any juvenile recruitments, any metamorphs coming through for a couple of years there. And for a, for a species that kind of only lives for three to maybe four years in the chytrid environment, um, they can live a lot longer in captivity or pre-chytrid, but in a chytrid environment, they tend not to get past a, a few years of age. And have no recruitment and high adult mortality in a population of 100 frogs. Unfortunately, that was kind of spelt the end of that population. There was only one frog left after that, and they disappeared again. Um, but we've been we've got them breeding here at the zoo, and we've been doing trial reintroductions. We've just started trial reintroductions not long ago uh, to a couple of sites. So hopefully that that species can be kind of bouncing around again soon enough. Um, and, and the other species we've started working with more recently is the Burralong frog. And that's one that we used to have here at the zoo. We did a, a program for that back in from 2007 through to about 2011, uh, during the end of that kind of real real bad drought period back then when it looked like some populations were going to disappear on us, um, established breeding protocols and everything. And and then uh, more recently in 2019, the northern populations of this species um, looked like they were going to disappear. And they're quite genetically divergent from the southern populations, uh, quite unique up there and, and during that real severe drought, a lot of the rivers up there that they occur in, the Peel River, the Isis River, the, um, a, a lot of those river systems, the Co- Coburn River, they, they dried totally dry um, and the alarm was raised by the, the I guess the person that know most about the species, Phil Sparks. He's an environmental consultant up there who does a lot of the survey work on a lot of the threatened herps in northern New South Wales and 
and he raised the alarm that he done all these typical surveys and from a lot of sites couldn't find them. Uh, he could only find 30-odd frogs. Um, so he notified DPIE and straight away kind of put action into place to get up there. And uh, so uh, a couple of us from Taronga, uh, the Australian Museum, DPIE went up there and kind of mapped out all the potential sites that the species occurs in, uh, went and spoke to lots of property owners to find out where the deepest holes on those rivers might be in case there was any moisture still uh, in there anywhere. And we spent a few days kind of out, out there of even, all evening trying to find whatever frogs we could and we ended up managing to collect 60 frogs. Uh, and there was a couple of sites where we know there were still frogs persisting um, because if the drought persisted any longer, those couple of the holes we collected them from, uh, I, I wouldn't say were, were really even water bodies. They're kind of, you're looking at little muddy, filthy looking puddles that are only kind of two metres across that have 20 eastern longneck turtles kind of bunched into them because there's, there's nowhere else. And it was looking pretty grim actually. So we collected those and I've got those and more recently we've we've set up a, um, a conservation facility for those guys with funding from DPIE um, and, and the frogs are down there and they're breeding at the moment uh, and doing quite well so our aim is to re-establish them again back on the Peel River and a number of those rival rivers that it looks like they've actually been knocked out of during that severe drought. Yeah. It still just blows me away the amount of like work that does go into like I mean obviously there's got uh, going to be a lot of work that does go into going out to these places and collecting all these frogs and establishing populations but it just you know it's always just mind blowing to kind of hear about it you know it's it kind of goes unheard too a lot of that as well yeah like you hear you hear a lot of work with the corroboree frog but some of those other ones I didn't even know about. Yeah, no, no, de definitely. And, and a lot goes because we, we do have a lot of research here, like with Burrowlong frogs. Last time when they were here, we, we did uh, chytrid acquired immunity studies with James Cook University, trying to establish whether or not we can immunize frogs for chytrid fungus. Uh, did a range of, in fact, next week, next week we're going to be doing sperm collection and cryopreservation on the Burrowlong frogs as well. So for the founder frogs from the yellow, yellow spotted bell frogs, the Burrowlongs, uh, we collect sperm using hormone uh, hormone tr uh, treatments to, to get maximum sperm production from the male, collect his sperm, and we cryopreserve it too. So it's kind of biobank down. That, so then kind of 10, 15 years' time, we're at the point where we're starting to kind of reduce the genetic diversity within the population. We can reinsert the founder genes again to kind of keep the population ticking over well. So there's lots of lots of little bits and pieces that go into the kind of the, the moving program overall. It's just mind-blowing. Like, yeah. it's honestly mind-blowing. Like, I'm kind of sitting here. You can't see it, obviously, with the webcam, but I'm just kind of staring at the screen going, wow. <laughs> I'm just nodding going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's oh, cool. man. So you've, like, I mean, we're just going to keep talking about conservation here because this is obviously yep. the kind of topic of this this uh, podcast with you. But uh, there's a couple of other species that you've actually done some um, conservation work with as well, and they're the blue-tailed skink and the listers gecko from Christmas Island. Are you able to kind of just give us a little bit more of like a, a history on these these particular lizards up there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they're two of kind of – two of Australia's reptile fauna that I guess a lot of people haven't heard of because they're not found on the mainland of Australia. Uh, they're only up in the Christmas Island. And unfortunately, Christmas Island, the reptile ecology of Christmas Island really crashed over a decade ago. Um, there, was, there was a handful of skinks and geckos in total found on the island. So, um, and unfortunately, they started disappearing in the late 2000s there and, and the, the coastal skink disappeared off the island. Uh, fortunately, that species was the one that's not only endemic to that island, it's on other islands as well. But, but um, the forest skink... Um, the blue-tailed skink and the listers gecko population crashed dramatically. And by 2010, uh, it, it looked like they were going to disappear totally. So 
Parks Australia uh, collected what what they could of the blue-tailed skink, listless gecko, and um, the forest skink. Uh, unfortunately for the forest skink, it was a bit too late. Uh, only three were collected, and unfortunately, uh, th- those three have since died. And, and the I think they were all one sex too. And the the species is is one of the first in Australia to was the first one declared as a extinction since European settlement of a reptile species. Um, but the blue-tailed skink and the listers gecko, fortunately, were able to, to breed up in number on the island. They, they doubled the number within a year and then split the colony genetically in half, and half have come here to Taronga and half have stayed on the island. Um, the, the reason for their decline, uh, for these guys, it's not disease, it's introduced predators. Uh, unfortunately for these guys, the Asian wolf snake and the giant Asian centipede um, are both kind of effective little lizard predators, and they're, they're right across Christmas Island. Um, and in addition to that, you've also got the yellow crazy ants um, and they form those super colonies that kind of go through and w- wipe out small animals, including the red crabs that migrate across the island. They've been severely impacted by the yellow crazy ants. So unfortunately, a few invasive animals have caused a lot of havoc on on that one small island, including the, I guess, the total disappearance of, of three skinks and one gecko species. Um, wow. But yeah, fortunately for the blue-tailed skink and the listless gecko, the, the colonies were established in time. Um, we split the colonies, so we got half here at Taronga under our care and half on Christmas Island in, in captivity under Parks Australia. Uh, the ones here at Taronga, once again, it's probably one you don't hear of too often because it's not on display either. Um, there's strict requirements about it c- coming into the country and coming in, so they're in permanent um Aquas approved quarantine effectively. So there's two there's two rooms at the zoo that, that they're in and like under high quarantine, um, which both, I guess, in case they have anything, which they don't, unfortunately, we've had them for 10 years now. And uh, with, any, with every reptile at the zoo that dies uh, or amphibian, they, they get post postmortems done on them. But but um, it's also to keep, I guess, anything out for when they go back to Christmas Island. We want to make sure we don't risk introducing anything back to back to Christmas or to where they're going, I guess, on Cocos Island. So um, the breeding success of those guys has been great with no problems breeding those guys and producing uh, large numbers of eggs. Um, and in recent years, for Christmas Island, unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to establish them in the wild on Christmas Island. Um, Asian wolf snakes and giant Asian centipedes, there's, there's pretty much no way of eliminating those animals. Um no one's ever eradicated the invasive snake species. Um, they're not something you can bait for too rapidly. They, they, unfortunately, any bait you put out, snakes, you know how snake, long snakes can go without food. Um, and yep. something like a Asian wolf snake, you, you could be in an area where there's 20 of them and you're going to be lucky to see one. They're such cryptic little cryptic little beasts and effective lizard predators. And for the for the centipedes, they're everywhere too. And any kind of baiting you ever tried for that spe- those species, you'd impact on all the crabs on the island and, and so forth as well. So, unfortunately, I, I can't imagine us ever being able to establish those guys in the wild. Um, on the island, Parks Australia have been doing um, predator-free enclosures, so large fenced areas to keep predator-free and introducing skinks and geckos into those uh, on a smaller scale. But more recently, uh, two years ago now, two years ago, uh, after many years of previous study uh, we started doing translocations to the cocos islands just to the west of there um, so it took it took a fair while into the program for that to start because feasibility studies had to be done to to select islands that had the most appropriate habitat and also just to make sure that there's going to be no impact of re- translocating blue-tailed skinks across to those islands you want to make sure you're not impacting any kind of fauna on those islands um, so a lot of feasibility studies were undertaken first and to, to make sure that that kind of impacts won't happen and fortunately, on the Cocos, there's no native reptile species. Uh, there's a bunch of invasive gecko species, all, all, your, all your common ones that kind of turn up everywhere, like your, your morning gecko, your Asian house gecko, 
flat-tailed gecko, or all of the kind of common invasive species are there. Um, but yeah, some of the habitat on, on two islands in particular, um, some habitat rehab work was undertaken. Rats were removed off those islands, um, and blue-tailed skinks have been translocated. And and um, starting two years ago, uh, we've done one translocation to one island of 150 animals from Taronga and 150 from Parks Australia on Christmas Island, and and that population is booming. It's doing really well. Uh, they're breeding in the wild. Their the population's increased significantly since since the release. And on the second island, we've done two releases onto, and, and they seem to be doing pretty well too. Still too early to know how they're going to go long term, but um, it's one of those programs that um, if, if we can hit another island and, and get another established population, then I think the species is going to start moving towards being kind of secure, going from extinct in the wild for, for a decade it was gone um, to, to hopefully being secure again, just not wow. on the original island. That's amazing. <laughs> it's so unreal to think that they've yeah. gone that far around, you know, for being extinct for 10 years and then, well, you know, on the island. But that's yeah. just insane. No, it's, it, it's a good feeling. When, it's a good feeling when you're not battling a disease. Diseases are one yeah. of those uh, hassles. If, you can, if it's a predator and you can get rid of the predator or get them somewhere where the predator isn't, there's a good chance of success, which, which I guess it's, early, it's still early stages, but, but it's, it's, look, it's looking quite promising. It, it just goes to show too, like how much us as a species of humans, like we, we've just screwed up by, you know, just locating all these other predators and different animals all over the world and, you know, having all yep. these other environmental impacts. And, you know, it's no different to having obviously the cane toad here or, you know, foxes, rabbits, goats, whatever you want to call it. Or, you know, I can't even remember the island, but isn't there, you know, Boiga irregularis, the brown tree snake, they're invasive. Guam, isn't it? Guam, Guam they're going yeah. nuts. Yeah. And they're decimating birds and things over there, if I'm not mistaken. hundred uh, percent. Yeah, they've wiped out a lot of species of bird over there, and and they've spent millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to control them, and then they're, they're not much closer at the moment. Fortunately, something like a boiga, you, you kind of they can get anywhere and kind of go a long time without feeding. Unfortunately, it's a it's an uphill battle once a snake gets established. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> you never really think about a snake becoming an invasive species, but you know it's. It's no different here in Sydney, you know. We've got wild population of corn snakes, for example, you know. So there's, you know, always a chance that those things are going to become a real problem at some stage. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine the climate's pretty good here, and and the, the, there's plentiful food around. I can imagine them establishing quite well. What impact they'll have on other species? It's, I, I could I couldn't really estimate, but but uh, I can imagine them surviving at least and establishing well. Yeah. Yeah, well, with these uh, mouse and rat plagues that have been around at the moment, they they definitely got a lot of food around. I know my, my father's been sending me photos of some big browns and stuff that are down Canberra and Yasway, so you know, they're starting to look pretty thick down there. I'd be loving it. Well, well fed. Yeah. Um, so another interesting species that you've actually been working with, and I know uh, one of our friends, Andrew Rogers and, and Terence Rogers, they're going to be really excited to hear a little bit about this. But um, you've been working alongside with the Bellinger River turtles as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a, and that's a really interesting program. Um, so with that species, um, I guess for anyone not aware, the Bellinger River is a river in northern New South Wales, uh, kind of about six hours north of Sydney. Um, and there's a species that only occurred in that river system. Um, and unfortunately, in 2015, they pulled out a couple of kind of a couple of kayakers pulled out a couple of sick looking ones and uh, um, reported it and sure enough they did surveys just to work out what was going on and pulled out over the course of kind of a couple of weeks hundreds of dead dead and dying turtles um, 
So um, at the time, it wasn't known exactly what was causing it, whether it was kind of, whether it was disease, whether it was a, a pollution event, whether it was a starvation event, that kind of thing. But they're all getting pulled out of the river with kind of puffy eyes and uh, quite emaciated and not doing well. And um, sure enough, it proved out to be a, a disease, um, a nidovirus, um, which which is, is quite unique. Um, I guess there's other reptile nidoviruses, the shingleback flu, the bobtail flu is a, is a, a nidovirus as well. But, but uh, it had, had a massive impact. And all the sick ones are pulling out. They had 100% mortality of, of the, the sick ones. Um, so um, they acted quite rapidly, which was really good. And they collected from the very upstream stretches of the, the river as the, the the disease was moving upstream too. So against the current um, at a few kilometres. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. We, we still don't know where it came from. Um, we still don't know exactly how it was transmitted. Uh, there's a student at the moment working on transmission studies to try to work out how it's transmitted. But because the disease event happened so rapidly, like within a couple of months, it, it, had, it had burned through the population. Um, and but at that stage, it still wasn't detectable. Like they didn't know exactly what was causing it. The disease hadn't been described or found yet. So um, unfortunately, our knowledge of it is still, I guess there's a greater knowledge now, but it's still not... Um, what I would call like it's not at the level of chytrid fungus, for example. Um, unfortunately, as the disease event was happening, they collected um, 16 turtles from the very upstream pools of where the species occurs before the disease got there. And they were sent to Western Sydney University under the care of uh, Ricky Spencer and co uh, at, at the university in quarantine for, for a year. Um, and then in April 2016, they came to Taronga. Um, we had a facility set up ready to go uh, here at Taronga to, to um, get those little guys in. And there was uh, nine males, seven females, of which five fem- females were mature at, at that stage. Um, so that they they came to the zoo, and and by that stage in the wild, there's probably 150 odd left of the species. Um, so they declined pretty rapidly, and and it took out almost the whole adult population. So this disease kind of left the hatchlings and one year olds effectively, but took out almost the whole adult population. And as a as a result, there's been no wild breeding since 2015. So for that wow. species, kind of a, a wild crazy. a wild egg hasn't hatched in kind of six years for that species, um, which is crazy. Yeah. So, so they're here at Taronga now. Uh, and then a few years post the disease going through, another 19 juveniles were collected, uh, ones that tested negative for the disease and were set up as an additional uh, ex-situ colony at Symbio Wildlife Park, uh, a bit south of Sydney. So they've got a, a really good facility down there at Symbio and a, a, a additional 19 animals. Uh, one of the really interesting things, collecting 16 animals from the upstream ponds of the distribution, like quite close to each other, you'd kind of, my assumption would be they're somewhat related. But but um, Arthur George's, uh, Arthur George's who, who the species is named after, um, he, he's down at University of Canberra and he run the genetics uh, for us. And, and the, the 16 animals are pretty much dotted evenly over the spread of genetics in the species. So on the tree of like all the, the genetic samples that have been banked, the 16 turtles are pretty much evenly spread right throughout that whole tree. It's kind of the perfect scenario, which, um, yeah, came in quite handy for us. It means we've got a lot of unrelated animals uh, to kick off. And, yeah, the, the, the breeding is actually – the breeding here at the zoo has kind of exceeded our expectations. Um, it, it's gone exceptionally well. Um, since that first year, we've had one female who has never laid an egg, um, and, and every year um, – yeah, every year she develops follicles, has never laid an egg. Um, we've done CT scans and it looks like she's got some previous trauma like from years ago and we're wondering whether that's an impact. But taking her out of the equation, uh, every single female has produced the first clutch every year of the program so far. So it's amazing. Yeah, in the, the first the first three years, um, first three years we had the 
Um, five, five mature females. One didn't lay. All four of the others have laid uh, each of those years. And then the, the other two younger girls have just matured a couple of years ago. And since then, six of the seven girls have laid every year. So every year that females have, um, have laid, a couple of the females have double clutched. Um, which is really good. It's kind of exceeded our expectations. Kind of, I was thinking of at least 50% to kind of 70% lay each year. Um, we might kind of be hitting kind of success there, but, but other than that one girl, every single female is laid every year. And it means we've got lots of young turtles that have been rearing up and, and it means we've been able to do, um, translocations to the wild, um, which is, which is great. So starting November, 2018, we did the first translocation of turtles back to the river. We've, with the Saving Our Species program, um, so the threatened species officers from DPOE up there have been um, doing the, they coordinate the surveys each year and they also do the radio tracking of the animals that have been released and the survival rate's actually been through the roof on the released animals. Um, from that first 10, 10 trial release in 2018, uh, only one's known to have died. Um, one's had a transmitter failure, but the other kind of eight are, are thriving in the river and 10 the year after, similar thing again, there's none that have died from that year. So, so uh, those turtles are actually doing quite quite well. We released 32 last year, and the radio tracking only on eight of those ones um, uh, we put transmitters on. Um, they're they're doing quite well. So so far, the survival of turtles post release has been um, really 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 successful. Um, of course, at the moment they're still quite young, so then they're potentially not at an age where they get infected by the virus. Um, they're, they're all being swabbed at each capture, and, and none of them have tested positive for the virus. So, so that's great. Hopefully, fingers crossed that this virus might actually have burned itself out and, and not be present anymore. It's it's hard to it's really hard to know. But but um yeah, so far um that's a program where yeah the breeding has 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 done really really well, and the the post release survival has, has gone really well so far. So it's it's um. I know it's moving in the right direction. We're, we're, we're quite happy with how that one's progressing along. That's good to hear. That is awesome. That's Yeah, so so what sort of numbers are you talking essentially with these turtles now between you and Symbio? Is, is there sort of like a rough figure that you can throw out there as to what you guys are kind of just holding on to, hoping to kind of get back out there? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, Symbio have only got the original 19 turtles still. Uh, their ones yep. aren't, aren't quite mature yet, so... They were the ones collected after the outbreak had gone through and it was only juveniles remaining. Okay. Um, and yep. looking at the size of them, they're coming up to a size soon where they'll, where they'll be reproductive. They, they might get a female across the line this season. I'm, I'm not sure, but it may be the year after. Um, whereas here at Taronga, we still, in terms of mature animals, because they've only, they've only, we only got them in 2016, so we still our F1s aren't mature yet. Uh, we can sex yeah. them and everything now, but they're, they're, not, they're not mature just yet. Um, certainly the females uh, won't be for another couple of years. So we've got 16 mature animals still, but we've got uh, over 100 individuals in in, in total. Um, we, we keep back a, we're going to keep back a few from each of the clutches. We, we want to make sure we get genetic representation from all of the founders, yeah. um, um, just in case anything happens to any of the initial initial founders. Um, and then other than that, we're we're producing them for the trial reintroductions. And so far, it has been it was. 10 in 2018, 10 in 2019, just to do initial trial releases. You, you kind of start small initially with the radio transmitters just to work out what's happening. And, and we, we hold on to them, so we head start them at just under two years of age. Um, like you, you, you could release at any stage, like you could release hatchlings, one-year-olds, two-year-olds. Um, but we figured based on the fact there's eels, catfish, and other, other things out there and how endangered they are and we, we need survival rates to kind of be well, we figure we grow them to a size beyond which they can fit into the mouths of most of those big fish um, and, and and do trials. And so this year we've got another 30 that are going to go out in another month's time. Um, 
and then post that. So pretty soon once, like at the moment, it's fairly small releases. I don't think we're going to recover a species releasing kind of 10 to 30 individuals a year. Um, beyond this year, um, we should be able to re- produce kind of at least 50 to 60 animals, if not more, per season. Um um, but then once our first F1s mature and Symbios once come online, we're hoping if we can produce 150 to 200 kind of 18-month-old animals for release each year, I think we'll go a long way towards recovering the species in the wild, which is which is our aim. Um, yeah. Do you know yeah. roughly what age they can actually contract the virus or, or that's not really actually known? We, we don't, unfortunately, no, yeah. no. So we'll, we'll find that out over time. Like these animals, yep. especially those, those 28 with the transmitters, or 27 remaining with the transmitters, they'll continue to be tracked. Um, so we'll learn a lot through uh, the tracking of those guys and the yep. continuous swabbing of those guys to work out when they become positive, if they become positive. <coughs> and of course, there's one other threat in the wild too. It's, it's the the Macquarie River turtle, the uh, Emijuras. So they've been released into that river. Um, for, for many years, it was thought that there was an endangered population of uh, Macquarie in that in that river system because it was only only five percent of the turtles were macquarie they only turned up there in the 80s first notice and there was a very small numbers um but genetic studies since have, have shown that they're kind of a mix from all over the place so uh turtles that have been released into the river unfortunately and, and their numbers are significantly increasing in the river so some of the work from western sydney universities looked at kind of competition and and that kind of behavior between the turtles just to work out it, how, how big a threat they are there's evidence there's been at least one uh, hybridization event between uh, the Bellinger River turtle and the the, um, the Macquarie eye. So that, that's another potential threat to the species that's kind of being investigated at the moment to see what level of threat that, that will be for the species. Yeah, they're a big turtle, those guys. They are, yeah. yeah. Yep. Do, do they get um, predated on it all? I mean, it's hard to say, obviously, with, you know, nests and stuff obviously not being abundant anymore, but would, like, foxes up that way kind of be a bit of a, a problem too with any of the turtle nests? They, they would be for sure, yeah. No, definitely. Uh, I know Ricky Spencer and his lab have done a bit of work on that and James Van Dyke, they've done a bit of work on kind of foxes and um, t- turtle nest predation. It seems turtles, um, their nests get smashed by foxes. Um, so that, that's something that will need to be addressed at, at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what kind of fox control is happening out there at the moment, but saying that at the moment, there'd be a lot of Macquarie nesting, but no Bellinger River turtle nesting. So, so they're, they're, they're probably doing us a favor by keeping the Macquarie down in the meantime <laughs> until the, until the, until the Bellinger River turtles start breeding, of course. But, but yeah, then there'd have to be fox control in those areas to, to kind of in, in key areas anyway, to try to protect the, uh, the turtles when they start nesting. Yeah. It still just blows me away. That's yeah. um, such an awesome effort to be able to, you know, uh, you must feel so good too when you actually do get these kind of animals you're hatching out and going, oh, cool, you know, there's a few more here. There's a few more like we're, you know, stepping in the right direction to know that at least you you have saved them from going extinct and then it's just about that re-indu- reintroduction and, and hoping everything's going well and obviously those guys seem like they're cranking along out there so that's always always good. Yeah, that, that is promising. It's, it's a great feeling, I guess, breeding them and a great feeling releasing them. But for me, it's more the the post-release. It's always the nervous kind of wait to see what what happens. And, and then we do everything in experimental fashion. So if something's not working kind of thing for whatever reason, uh, we, hopefully we can establish why straight away and then retweak it to the following releases or for following years. And um, we work with our partners on that to, to make sure, like some of the partners we work with through DPIE mostly, uh, are really good and University of Wollongong as well on some of the frog projects. So um, it, it's 
all, all the reintroductions are the post-release monitoring is done really extensively. So, so hopefully if anything doesn't work, we can kind of get a fair idea of why it's not working. Yeah. Just kind of nutting it out really. I mean, it's, yeah. It, it would be hard to kind of learn how to breed some of these species too if, you know, it's never been done because obviously every animal is different. So you've got to figure out all those triggers and, you know, incubation temperatures if needed or, or you know, uh, raise up temperatures and things as far as tadpoles are concerned. Like, yeah, so many factors involved with that. That's... Yeah, there, there, there is. And for, for, the good thing is for the most part, like for the Bellinger River turtles, I, I don't think we could have had any kind of better success other than that one female, which I think she's potentially compromised. Um, the, the Christmas Island lizards have, have done really well from the from the get-go. Um, the Burulong frogs kind of surprised us too. When we got, first got them in 2007, uh, we collected 33 animals and that breeding season we got representation from all of them. So successful breeding from, from every one of those frogs, which is really good uh, in that first season. And it looks like we're probably going to do the same this season with the ones we collected from up north. Uh, the yellow-spotted bell frogs killed me though. That That's one species that... For years, and they disappeared in the wild by then, and we still hadn't bred them yet. And we breed the green and golden bell frogs, no problems at all. Um, we paired them up, we get eggs, like more eggs than we need kind of thing. But with the yellow spotted, our indoor breeding just didn't seem to work. And we had them in, in our uh, one facility and it, it just no success whatsoever. We, we'd have calling, we'd have amplexing. Um, we just never got eggs. Uh, and we had a whole range of different oviposition sites, which which um, it kind of baffled me. So then we tried uh, some raised outdoor aviaries, which – may not have been quite big enough before we figured we better kind of bite the bullet and set up a big outdoor aviary just to make sure we get kind of breeding from those guys. And we did, within a year of setting that up with good aquatic vegetation in the water, uh, uh, we had breeding from those guys and we've had clutches from most of our mature females each year since. Yeah, wow. When, when, so, so kind of doubling back on ourselves a little bit, but, you know, we're talking about the, the Lister's gecko as well out at um, – Christmas Island. How do you go with a gecko kind of getting some numbers up there? Because they can be, you know, obviously geckos don't pump out a lot of babies like a lot of other animals do. So how's that kind of work? Yeah, no, nah, well, they, they, they can produce a couple of clutches a year, um, but those little guys. They're quite tiny attachlings. The little, so they're in the genus Lepidodactylus. So they're the same genus as the morning gecko from up in northern Queensland and kind of the species that's kind of established itself right throughout the, the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. Um, unfortunately for the Lister's gecko, they're all, fortunately enough, that they're, they're a sexually reproducing species, unlike the morning gecko, which is a, a parthenogenic beast. Um, but, yeah, breeding them, uh, we breed them pairwise. Uh, so we do them in pairs. They're managed by a stud book um, yeah. uh, genetically. And the blue-tailed skinks we manage more in a group scenario. We house the females and males separately. Uh, we find that the males continually harass the females if, if housed um, mixed together. Uh, so we house them separately and then put the, the males in with the females for, for a brief period, like one or two days for once a month, uh, and then take them back out again. So that way they're producing eggs, but the females aren't getting continually smashed by the males. Yep. Yeah. So just another quick one to double back. Are the other turtles in the Bellingen River testing positive for nidovirus as well? It's a good question. No. No, the Macquarie I didn't test positive which is really, really interesting. And, and when the outbreak happened as well, uh, so our, our pathologists, wildlife pathologists here at the zoo, uh, work quite closely with DPIE to try to nut out the what was killing them straight away. And once the virus was detected, they sampled they sampled lots of Macquarii. Uh, they sampled so many other kind of aquatic macroinvertebrates, so freshwater mussels, uh, aquatic insects, uh, water dragons, um, 
frogs, everything along that river system to try to work out what may be a reservoir host species, like what else could carry this virus, and and nothing else did. So, so nothing else tested positive for the virus. So it's it's got us baffled. So it seems Macquarie I seem to be pretty immune to it. Um, the um, yeah, Macquarie I seem to be pretty immune to it. They, they I think one Macquarie I tested positive to viral particles, but it's believed they'll just shed particles kind of opportunistically, like bits of RNA that were picked up. Um, yep. But none none tested positive, and certainly none were sick. So it's, re- it's really really interesting. Where it come from, we we don't know. We know we know it, 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 certainly there are private collections that, that have uh, that virus and also an, another virus um, uh, that impacts on another turtle. But but, but um, where it came from, like whether it was released into the river, like on a pet turtle um, or whether it came in on a, a released fish or some infected water, uh, we, yeah, we, we still, don't, still don't know to this day how it got in there. Yeah. Really it's interesting. Crazy. Yeah, it could it could potentially impact on if it got into the Manning River turtle uh, system. It could potentially impact on that species too. Um, yeah, don't know yet what impact it could have on those guys that we got in there. So fingers crossed. Is that only recently it's got into that system? Um, oh, it hasn't got into the Manning yet, as far as, far as we oh, know. Okay. But if it does get in there uh, for whatever reason, then so it's one one of those things. I guess the importance of biosecurity and kind of if you're diving in certain river systems or with boating in river systems, it's good to kind of disinfect gear between and because um. One of those things, viruses like this. If those two kayakers hadn't seen a couple of Bellinger River turtles that were quite sick with puffy eyes, um, and it went undetected for another month or so, it could have been almost too late for that species. Yeah, it's crazy. But so, fortunately, fortunately, that wasn't the case. It's a, it's a, it's a, a yeah. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. So just before we kind of go wrapping things up and to kind of just shift the conversation a little bit away from conservation, um, we have to ask about herping because obviously Jason and I are kind of sticking to get out and need to line something up for ourselves to, you know, now that we're we're free. Um, have you got any kind of really cool trips that you've been on or any species encounters that you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, sure. Um, definitely. I, I guess within, within Australia, I've, I've had a couple – I've been fortunate that I've been lucky through, I guess, through work to experience a couple of good places overseas. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to go spend a, a week on Komodo, um, helping the mark recapture work on Komodo dragons, and that was good fun. And I, I spent some time in Southeast Asia too, um, teaching amphibian conservation husbandry courses. Uh, so I got to do some herping in those areas and see some cool vipers and, and those kind of things. And uh, in the US, get to get to go across and chase some big eastern diamondback rattlesnakes and. And those kind of bits and bobs, but within Australia, um, I, I guess for me, most of my trips have been family trips um, around the place. We, we the last one I did was, I guess when when the kids were, had three kids under five, we drove up through Western Queensland up to up to um, Darwin and around Kakadu and then down through the Red Centre and across and back home and saw a bunch of things. But in, in more recent years, uh, a couple of years ago, um, myself and the family with the kids a little bit older, they're kind of. Uh, the youngest one was only eight, I think, at the time. Uh, we drove across to WA um, and then up the coast of WA. Um, so did the southwest, but then up in the Pilbara and the lower Kimberley region uh, before heading across into the uh, the territory and down. That was a great trip. Uh, the, the the kids got to see um, – I, I get more excited about it these days because the kids get to see a bunch of new species that, that they haven't seen before. And on that trip, I know you're into your monitors – on that trip alone, we saw kind of Varanus uh, pilbarensis and Glaudi and uh, Giganius, so some Parentes, um, lots of Rosenbergs, um, 
I guess a, a whole range of beasts, Mertens, water monitors, and um, wow. yeah, it's, it, it's pretty cool. I've, uh, one thing that'll make you happy, Luke, I've never seen a wild Gillens. Oh, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Finally. Finally. And I haven't oh, seen a Bushmite, and I haven't seen a Cordo Lineatus either. I haven't seen any of those three. So, so uh, yep, I've come up, come oh, up with well, empty there. I hope that you. Uh, I hope you do see some of those in the future, as uh, as I hope to as well. Because uh, yeah, I think you're the first person that's come on that hasn't stitched me up. With <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure you're the first person I tell when I when I do see one. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Make sure you send him a good picture. <laughs> yeah, I'm staring at one with his ass hanging out of a log at the moment, so <laughs> he looks quite comfy asleep. So at least I can see him here. <laughs> it makes me not feel so bad. Yeah. Awesome. No, no, I haven't seen one of those yet. But I, I, I'd say for me that I guess the best herping trips are, are those traveling about the place, kind of uh, looking at critters. Like I, I really enjoyed it around the that kind of lower Kimberley region. I haven't been up into the upper Kimberley yet. That was on the cards for the, this next coming year, but it's all been put on hold for for COVID. And same as I haven't done Cape York yet. And that was that was the family trip that was going to be last season, and then we postponed it because of potential for COVID. And now this season as well, uh, we haven't kind of booked anything yet but but um yeah that, that pilbara region is just ma- magical for for bits and bobs like a uh, just one night going out spotlighting we saw so many things um with the with, with the kids uh like from stimson's pythons to nefurus synctus the banded knobtails to uh, yeah. maybe i guess maybe 10 11 gecko species in a night like absolutely crazy numbers morgus snakes and so so um yeah i'd, I'd, I'd suggest wa yeah, I'm, I'm uh, sure they think New South Wales and Queensland, but but uh, from over this side of the country, it looks pretty good over there. Yeah, I, I've been stinging to get over there like really, really bad. As yeah, I've been watching heaps of herping videos in WA for the last couple of months, and that, that's somewhere that my wife wants to visit too. So if my wife wants to visit there, it's kind of like an easy out to go. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. You know, as long as you're prepared to stay up all night and <laughs> wear a head torch, I'm happy. You know? like, yeah, I'll come with you, and our wives can stay together, and we'll go herping. <laughs> that sounds like a good deal. Yeah, we could we could probably swing that. Yeah, I reckon we could too. Danny's great with kids too, so makes it oh, all better. awesome. It's it's a good. Pl- I think that's a really good plan. I, 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 I tend to I tend to wait for my all well, these days. I got the kids, so when I take them out herping, it's a family it's a family excursion rather than me taking off. Uh, <laughs> on, on our ten year wedding anniversary, we went to uh, Port Douglas uh, for, for for a couple of nights, myself and my wife, and uh, we went out snorkeling in the daytime, and she was pretty buggered. And I know by eight thirty, she looked like she was dozing off. Nine o'clock, she 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 crashed out. So I. <laughs> grabbed the camera, grabbed the torch, <laughs> took off for the night. I, I went up past Mount Malloy and right up to kind of Mount Carbine Way and all throughout the tablelands that evening. I remember at 2.30 in the morning getting a text message, where are you? <laughs> 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 at, at That's the, the thing, was, you've got to seize the opportunity. Exactly. You do, you do and if you figure they're asleep. It's not really, you're not really di- ditching so to speak. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they're sleeping, so, you know, it's all right. Yeah. I, Did you I, end up finding anything good that night? Uh, a few bits and pieces, yeah. Um, so when she messaged me, I was actually w- watching a striped possum at the time. Um, oh, cool. So, so I, I replied back saying, that, like, really exciting, looking at the striped possum. I, I didn't get a reply. <laughs> 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 but no, it was, it was well, well worth it. I've been up there a couple of times, but I've, I've, I haven't been north of Cooktown just yet. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to go up there, and yes, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm on a complete green high at the moment too. So, you know, 
I'm, I'm researching everything greens again and kind of refreshing memories. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, you know, watching uh, Matt and Matt Christie and and Jake's trip up there to see what what are they, what did they get like 13 green pythons or something over a course of a few nights. It was yeah, yeah something like that. I yeah. Think. And Josh showed me all. Josh Hatton went up there not long ago too, and showed me all those photos of his the canopy monitors and blue tail monitors, yeah, and whatever, whatever else up there too. It's crazy. Yeah, and there's awesome stuff up there. It's just completely that's 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 the beauty about Australia is our our animal species. Like even if you just call you know even just reptiles, like our reptiles are so diverse. It doesn't yeah. matter where you go, there is something awesome that just fits the bill for that perfect spot. You know, like and it's. Yeah, you can go anywhere in this country and find something awesome. Yeah, no, very, very much so. Yeah, even in New South Wales, if we don't make it out of the, if we don't make it out of the country by the, out of the state by the end of the year, which I, th- I think we will, but if we don't, even Western New South Wales, even the northwest of the southwest, there's so many cool species out there. That's yep. worth yeah, yeah, that's that's somewhere that I'm really wanting to go. Um, I know there's been a bit of talk about even getting up to potentially Narrabri or you know out mm. to Burke or something like that. Yeah, we we shot we shot out to Sturt National Park as a family uh, last summer um, because we couldn't go interstate. So we figured, oh, we'll, we'll go as far as we can, and we went, went camping around Sturt National Park and then down south went to Broken Hill and then wrapped around the southern part of the state on the way back just to get out and about. My, good thing my, my kids tolerate the car quite well. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> mine are a bit too young to tolerate it at the moment. And so. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, six six months and two years is uh, oh yeah, yep. pretty young. Yeah, yep. no, that uh, t- totally. Well, the trip I did through Western Queensland up to Kakadu and and um, down through the Red Centre, my youngest was ten months of age. I think on that trip, unfortunately, tra- travelled really well in the car. Just slept in the car a lot, which was so that's awesome, so handy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the four year old and the five year old at least they could play with little tablets or something like that while they're yeah, that's right. Yeah, the young ones, you kind of you hope you get someone who sleeps really well in the car. Yeah. 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 Oh, mate, this has been absolutely unreal. And, uh, you know, I know Jason and I haven't done a hell of a lot of talking uh, on this episode, but, you know, we've just been taking this all in like a sponge. This has just been... I don't yeah. think everyone wants to listen to our voices all the time. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> My apologies, guys. Once I start, I kind of can't stop. No, it's good. It's great. Mate, it's, it's absolutely good. perfect. I feel like I've, I've learnt a lot today. So Yeah, so have I. Yeah. And just a little bit of insight into what's kind of going on behind the scenes that, you know, again, we don't see everything going on with it. You know, it's it's cool to go to the zoo and you kind of see like the little corroboree frog setup that you got there and you can kind of peek in and see them all there on their, on their moss hanging around. But, you know, all these other animals that are kind of off display that you just don't hear about, like it's, yeah, it's unreal to get, get a little bit of insight into it. Yeah, and hopefully you'll see a bit more in the future too because this new reptile house that we're planning at the moment, we're kind of really deep in the design phase at the moment, hence why I'm, I'm still at work at the moment. Uh, it's uh, we're, we're planning. It's going to be a three-story building, and it's going to have kind of a couple of conservation facilities on display within the reptile house as well, kind of on the lower That's level. Um, building a new vet hospital as well, and we're hoping that the blue tail skinks and the Lister's gecko um, conservation rooms will actually be quarantined rooms on display, um, so you'll be able to see the the full setup and off off exhibit kind of display of the breeding of those guys as well. So unreal. Fingers crossed. In two, awesome. two years time, they'll all be kind of hopefully front and center. Yeah, oh, that'd be great. I have to yeah. come down for a visit sometime soon. It's been a little while since I've been in Taronga. Yeah, yeah, it's been a few years since I've been there. You're welcome to. We'll, we'll line up another Yats talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the, the last time that I was there, 
I want to say it was actually no, it was the Yats talk was probably the last time I was there. But the time before that, I had um, uh, Tracy. Is it Tracy Dixon? She's one of the ungulate keepers. She looks after the giraffes and stuff there. Yeah, um, yeah. She uh, she uh, kind of gave me a little backstage tour of of, uh, of the place, and I got in to feed some giraffes and uh, got to go and fondle some tortoises with uh, I think M M Bembrick, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was unreal. And my my wife almost got eaten by a chameleon, which was hilarious. So. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. Good fun. All right, mate. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, this yeah, has been thanks, an absolute Hake. blast. Did you want to throw out any sort of like information if, if anybody wanted to kind of follow you around or, or any adventures you're up to or do you want to kind of give anything a plug? Yeah, um, I, I guess I've got an Instagram page. Um, uh, I can't even tell you what the my handle on that is. Macca's Wildlife Shots, I think, or Macca's Wildlife Picks. So, so, something, something along those lines, admittedly. Uh, my young fella's got an Instagram page. I think it's immortal double underscore reptiles uh, for some of his captive, like his breeding of his reptiles at home. Um, but they're probably the probably the best bet for me is probably Instagram rather than rather than Facebook. I'm not on Facebook all that much these days. Yeah, so uh, it's uh, Macca's Wildlife Shots on on Instagram. Yeah. I'll just double check that for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's awesome. Uh, all right, well, mate. Well, yeah, we'll we'll wrap things up here. And yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, heaps. No worries. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Cool. All right, guys. We would like to say a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the MPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at MoreliaPythonRadio.net and email them at info at MoreliaPythonRadio.net. As far as contacting us and our social media platforms, you can email us at AustralianHerpsaculture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Make sure to check out our Teespring store for podcast merch. The link is on the Facebook page. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach of Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Hope to Culture podcast. Good night, guys. Good night.